Glad you're here this morning. It is, man, I tell you what, it's great that it's finally spring, right? I mean, we've had more winter since spring started than we had all winter. And I am, I, because I started riding a motorcycle again last year, thanks to my, my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, I have longed for this day. Man, it's beautiful. I didn't get to ride today, but I can guarantee you when I go home, I will be out today. But anyway, enough about me, right? We're not here to, to, for you to hear about me and my um, vices, I guess. But we are, man, we, we are in a great place. I just want to share with you a little about what's going on in my life so that you see and understand, <clears throat> I think, really how providential it is that we are where we're at in this, even in this sermon series that we've been working through. Um, last week, I came, I preached Easter. Man, I was driven, so driven. My emotion was so rich and so thick, uh, not just because it's Easter and it was an exciting day, but really because God is doing a work in me. He is foundationally changing or expanding, maybe is a better way to say it, expanding my horizons and understanding of the gospel. And to me, that is an exciting thing. In our church, we oftentimes focus heavily on, well, not oftentimes, always focus heavily on the cross. And I don't want to stop focusing on the cross. But sometimes that leaves us in this place of, feeling, always feeling the weight of it and never allowing us to walk in the victory of the resurrection. And so I think this is going to foundationally change really how I speak and how, how I approach counseling and discipleship. And, and the reality is I think we're in a much better place for the church. But I just want you to see what God's been doing since we started last September with this sermon series. This was, this was no accident. God is at work, and it's an exciting thing. And so I, I just want to share this with you. We started back in September of this year with this coming up sevens. I've not rephrased, I've not really told you guys, and I'm not emphasized that this whole thing has been connected every week. It's, it's, not, it's not that that was necessarily my intent, but all the way back in September, we started a series of sevens, and we focused on the pattern and the way that seven kind of raises its head throughout the scripture. We're not numerologists. We don't we don't hold to some mystical number code in the Bible and we can break it and all of a sudden know everything that God knows. And we don't believe that. We don't think that. Um, but the reality is there are patterns and to, to not listen or ignore them anyway is it, probably silly, you know, because they're really there. So I, I began looking at these series of sevens and we started la last September with a study through Leviticus 23, looking at the seven sabbatical festivals that the Jews were were expected to observe that started with the Sabbath, went through Passover, first fruits, and, and there, was a, there was a whole series of them, seven sabbatical festivals that they were to, to observe throughout the year. And this, these were a call to worship. They were a call for them to set aside a day, set aside a week, time that they were to consecrate to God. And we recognize them as a call to worship, not just in a moment, but in all of life. God gave his people a call to worship. He expects them to worship. And so even today, while we don't participate in the Jewish traditions the way that they did, those observances or those calls to worship still have application for us. So that's where we started. We studied that. We saw it. We we heard the call to worship. We moved from there to the second series of seven, the, the seven um, signs or the seven miraculous signs from the, the Gospel of John. And we called that, here's your sign. And, you know, I got to have a little bit of fun with it. I don't know if you did, but I got to have a little bit of fun with it. And, and so we looked at those seven miraculous signs and we saw Jesus demonstrated as 
a more specific revelation, a more, a more um, intentional revelation of who Jesus was in his messiahship, in his, in his divinity, in his power. And he becomes, in the New Testament day, he becomes our focal point of worship. And as we worship him, we are worshiping the Father. Because all we do, pointed at Jesus, goes to the Father. He keeps none of the glory for himself. He points it all back to the Father. And the Father says, I'm going to glorify the Son. And so as we glorify Jesus and worship Jesus and adore him for his work, then all of this becomes about us worshiping God. He becomes our focal point. And that's what we study. We see the call. We see the focal point. But the reality is, is that we know there is something drastically wrong with us. We know that we are torn at our hearts, at the, at the core of who we are, to He's not always our worship, our, our, our focal point of worship. We know that we sing songs like, I'll stay where you stay, I'll follow you wherever you go. If this life I lose, I will follow you. We sing those songs and we want them to be true. But we know that in our hearts we wrestle against that. How in the world would God, a holy, righteous, perfect God, accept this kind of worship, this scatterbrained, um, divided, adulterate, adulterating worship. How would a God who is holy, perfect, and righteous accept that? That's where that third series of sevens came through, the one that actually led us into Easter, the series of crosswords, the words or the phrases that Jesus spoke from the cross. In those, we began to learn and see specifically what Jesus did to enable us as worshipers and to make our efforts acceptable as worship. So we saw that, and that led us right to the moment of Easter and our last week in that series was the moment which Jesus died. The next week we came together, it was Easter. Now, I will tell you, I had no intention. I wanted it to lead us to Easter. I had every intention of getting to that point and speak, preaching the resurrection the next Sunday. But I had no idea how it was all going to tie together. You see, these things are still relevant to us. The Old Testament, the phrases and, or the, the call to worship in the Old Testament, the, the traditions and the, and, the, and the practice that they follow, they're, they're still relevant to us today. In the call to worship because Jesus is alive. You see, that's the reality of it. This is relevant for us to know that Jesus is our focal point of devotion and worship. Not because he died on a cross, but because he died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And so it's still meaningful for us. It, it, it's, it's, it's necessary for us to study this and understand what he did to make us able to worship. Because he's no longer our suffering Savior, but he's our victorious Lord. He overcame death. He's living and breathing and ruling and reigning. That's this Jesus that we get to walk with and know. And so all of these things, they tie together. But here's the problem. Most of us have no real understanding, or at least we're not equipped oftentimes, to know what that looks like. What does it mean to live a life of worship? See, for many people, when you start speaking about, oh, your whole life is about bringing glory to God, they think, Man, how do I quit my job and go into ministry? Don't! Please. That's not what it's about. Is, is it about, okay, well, worship it. I, I've just got to make my whole week about looking forward to this hour and a half that I get to spend listening to Seth preach. That's awesome worship, right? You're supposed to say, right. Hey, you guys let me down, dude. I'm, fuck it. I'm done. Is, is, is that really what a worshipful lifestyle is all about? 
It's a worshipful lifestyle about, about traditions and rituals all the way through the week. Okay, I gotta sit down and I gotta pray five minutes a day in the morning, five minutes at night. Maybe, maybe I just need five times a day. If I pray five times a day, that'll be holy, righteous, worshipful living. If I read my Bible for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening, and I read from good, solid guys like Spurgeon, that's a worshipful lifestyle. Is, is that a worshipful lifestyle? You see, the reality is what we learn in this next series, the the question we're going to strive to answer, the perspective that I want us to gain is that living worship is is not just about ritual and tradition. Traditions and rituals aren't, aren't, aren't a bad thing by themselves. But it's more about living and intentionally making everything you do about Jesus' fame. That means when you get up and you go into the workforce, it's about Jesus' glory. When you sit down to pray, it's not to check a box, but it's to honor Him and driven by a devotion and a love for Him. But we see in this next series of seven, as we as we start to, and begin to study the seven churches of Revelation, we're going to get to see what Jesus approves of, what He doesn't like, and really is what threatens the church at large. I've called it the good and the bad and the ugly. I'll just let you know I had in my mind to put the theme song at the front slide so that I don't know, is the PowerPoint up behind? Yeah. I had it in my mind that we would put this, that I'd put this song on the front slide. You know that you know the theme song. Have you guys ever seen the good, the bad, and the ugly? I thought that would be awesome. And then I've been reading tweets from at Celebrity Pastor, and I thought, man, how cool would it be to get some guns and shoot them off? That would be like the Wild West. That would wake people up. And then I thought, wake up yourself. That's probably not beneficial or fruitful but the reality is that's what we're calling the good the bad and the ugly because the reality is church life is messy to live in this worshipful manner is messy there's going to be strengths that we have and there's going to be some serious weaknesses what we need to do is not feel condemned in the weaknesses but be encouraged that christ is longing for us to be what he's called us to be and so that's really where we're going to start that's what we're going to focus on the next seven weeks And we start with the first letter. Obviously, it makes sense to start with number one, and that's the church of Ephesus. If you've got a Bible today, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. It is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. And there's always version Live if you have that app on a smartphone or smart device of some sort. But let let me just let you guys in on a little bit of what was going on in Ephesus. Um, before Christianity and at the moment that Jesus was writing. It's one of the most influential cities in all of the region, if not the most influential city. There's, there's estimates of population somewhere around 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people. Uh, is a large city, very influential. It was the intersection of three trade routes, three major trade routes, and it also was the place where land routes met sea routes or water routes. And so there was this, this place where all of these, it, it became a hub for goods and services. There was a huge market there that people came from all over to, to shop in and to buy goods and to trade goods. In addition, it was politically, well, politically it would have probably been ranked a, one under the, the city of Pergamum. The reality is it did hold great political influence. It was a center of worship for emperor worship. There was two temples in the city of Ephesus that were devoted to worshiping the the Caesar or worshiping the Roman emperor. There was a massive theater there that was, it would seat about 25,000 
people. I think there's a picture of it behind me. It was a huge thing. I mean, this was a, this was a major deal for them, was the theater. And, and here's the, the, maybe you remember this story, but from Acts, this was the theater in which was filled with people because the Christian movement was making such a big dent in the, in the profits of those that pandered in idolatry and, and, and made money with the religious goods. It was making such a big dent in their profits that they began to push back against Christianity. There ends up being this, this, the whole city that tells you in the book of Acts, the whole city was in an uproar and people gathered and screamed, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, two hours. I'm, that's commitment. Oh, we don't, we don't like sitting here for an hour. Man, come on, we got lunch to get to, you know. Two hours saying the same thing over and over and over. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This happened in that in that theater. But in addition to their to their huge theater and, and, and their devotion to Artemis in that moment, Artemis was viewed, she was viewed and worshipped as the mother of life. A statue's been found of her, and, and, and again, I, I think there's a picture up there for you to see, but the, she is covered with breasts because they viewed her as the source of life. They looked to her as as the, and it, she's viewed a little differently than the Greeks or the Romans, but especially in Ephesus, she gained this position of being a part of fertility and really having an, an effect and a part of the delivering of children. Not so much that she enabled them to be conceived, but she helped mothers in the process of delivering children. It was pretty crazy, pretty crazy perspectives, but the worship of Artemis was huge there. There was a massive temple built to Artemis, and there was priests and priestesses, and, and the reality is that the priestesses were more like prostitutes than they were anything that you would imagine a priest to be. But it wasn't just what was going on in the sexual sense inside the temple. The temple became a refuge for criminals. If you were a thief and needed to hide out to get past whatever you'd done, you went to the temple. And it wasn't just the temple, but it was the area surrounding the temple in Ephesus that became a refuge for criminals. And so these guys, if, it, if they needed to run from the law, if they were hiding out, done something, you know, they just needed to go to the temple of Artemis. It wasn't a great place to be, but people went there, loved her, and were devoted to this false god. And this is the environment to which Christianity is introduced Somewhere around the early 50s AD, 50 AD, um, most people I think expect to think it's around 52 AD. But the reality is, is that Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, you know, they they have an influence in the early days. They come in, they bring the gospel, and they go on. Aquila and Priscilla stay and have a, have this influence. The gospel takes root. The church's birth. Paul goes back, deals with them, stays there for three years. Major, major, major response to the gospel. The church just blows up in Ephesus. Blows up. He leaves Timothy there. The, the letters of First Timothy, uh, the, the letter of First Timothy, written to Timothy, telling him, "I've left you here to establish leadership in this church. This is your responsibility. You're a pastor here, but you need to establish uh, leadership within the church so that they can become self-governing, self-ruling, and begin to live and be the church that God's called them to be." In addition, Paul writes the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. Major influence in the New Testament, major part of, the, of, the, of what was going on throughout the New Testament. And it's said, and tradition teaches us, that John and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, moved there after all of this happened and the church was established. John moves there, the apostle John, and he becomes a pastor and an influential part of the church in Ephesus along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's kind of where uh, it's thought that she uh, died there. 
we don't know exactly. But anyway, that's, that's what it's thought. So now as we study these seven letters, this is the first church in the whole series, and it really becomes formational or foundational, really, I think, for all that's going to come in the, in the letters that follow. But it's also one of two churches that receives a threat or a, a, not, just a not just a promise of what can come good, but a promise that if you don't turn around and do something, you're, it's almost done. So it, it's a pretty serious issue in Ephesus. Let's just begin to read, and, you, and we'll hit some points along the way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Now, here's the deal. I don't know if there's an angel assigned to every church. I love the idea of thinking that there's an angel here with us right now, that there's a messenger from God, and somehow he's whispering in my ear so that I can speak to you. I, I don't know how that works. We don't know. I've heard it taught both ways. A guy I respect a lot, Mark Driscoll, he, 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 as he taught on this, he said, hey, there's an angel assigned to every church, and he helps the ministers lead and, 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 and serve in the church. I, I hope that's true. But there's really no way to know. Angel also means messenger. And so as we read it, angel, they really could have intended it to be the messenger. And it could be speaking about the ministers or those who preach and teach in the church. And so we're not 100% positive, but I don't want you to deal with that confusion the reality is we don't know, and you know what? It's okay, because God's still on the throne, Jesus is still alive, and we don't have to have all the answers, okay? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Not only is Jesus about to, to write and give words to these churches, but he's about to present a picture of himself in every letter. And the reality is, is that every introduction he's going to give him of himself in these letters, he's already been introduced as in Revelation 1. You're welcome at some point to read Revelation 1 because it really provides great context for what comes in Revelation 2 and 3. But here we are. Jesus is introducing himself. He's saying these are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and is walking among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands uh, represented the church. The stars, we believe the stars represented the leaders or ministers or potentially the angels of the church. Jesus, holding them in his right hand, demonstrates that he is not only the authority of them, but they are in a place of, of, of uh, favor in his life, in his right hand. There's this position or perspective that Jesus is holding them. He's not just the source of what's going on in them, but he's the one that maintains it. At any moment, he can let him go. He's the sovereign ruler. He is the great shepherd. He is the head of all the church. There is no senior pastor that outranks Jesus. Jesus is the ruler and reigner over all the church. No one else can, can make that claim. Jesus holds the seven stars. And the beauty of it is he's not just holding these seven stars. He's walking among the seven lampstands. Before Jesus, was resur or before Jesus rose into heaven and took his rightful place at the right hand of God, he told his disciples, I won't leave you to the very end of the age. He says, go, make disciples, baptize them in all, or baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I should know this verse. <clears throat> Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, or, and I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus is keeping his promise. 
He is walking among the churches. He is among His people. He is present with us. He is closely connected. He has a part to play in us. And the beauty of this is as it all comes together, as Jesus is about to give these words, He lets these people know, I am your source, I am your sustenance, and I am the one who is in a position to bring these claims and to say these things because I am intimately connected with you. I'm your source, I'm your sustenance, I'm your ruler. I am, I am over you, but I am not disconnected from you. I am intimately involved with you, and I walk among you. That's a great promise. That's great. That should provide great hope for those of, us, those of us that are in the church because Jesus is fulfilling all that he said he would do, do. But then he gets into the meat of the letter. He says, I know your works your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But, man, you know what? If, if that was it, wouldn't that be awesome? This would be a healthy church. But... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. There's a pretty big but there. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so here we're going to just take some time to look at the good, the bad, the ugly of the Ephesus church. What, what did they have going for them? What did they have against them? What, what was it that Jesus approved and what didn't he approve? And the reality is, is that we don't want to look at it simply to condemn or to judge them. That doesn't do us any good because the reality is we face these same struggles today. It's to encourage us to live in, in a way that is approved by Jesus. Here, you don't ever have to wonder what Jesus wants for his people again. What does he expect of us? What is his will for my life? What does he want me to do? How do, I, how do I answer the call? How do I live worthy of his calling? He dealt with these issues in these seven churches. And today we see in Ephesus, he, uh, he commends them. He gives them the, the good. He says, this is what I, what I approve in you. They're hardworking, persevering, disciplined people. Literally, it says Jesus knows. And the, and the word that's know there means it demonstrates an intimacy. He knows he knows his people from the inside out. When you and I look at people or even, I don't know if any of you have ever managed people and had to review them and, and be a part of the process of growing them up as, as employees in, in a business. But we look from the outside. I mean, when, when when you want to say good stuff about a person, when you want to say the weaknesses that a person has, all you can do is look from the outside. That's all you got. But Jesus knows his people intimately. He is the one qualified to say the things that he's about to say to them. And he says, you are hard working. I see your deeds, your actions, those works that you have. I see them. I know them. Your heavy labor, the perseverance that you are, you're, you're, you're persevering in difficult circumstances. I mean, this is not like they persevered for a 5K. They persevered for a marathon. This is the real deal. I mean, they are every day. Think about where they were living. The religious center for one of the greatest false gods of their day, Artemis, 
junk all around them. Here they are in the midst of it, persevering in this. And they were a growing church. They have a high expectation of one another. Discipline. They they had a high expectation of of self-discipline and church discipline. It says that they didn't tolerate evil. In a city where criminals inhabited the, the, the temple, in a city where the priestesses were more like prostitutes, in, in a city where, where evil reigned, they were getting it done. They were serious about the task that they had been given. They were serious about the work that they were to do. The Ephesian church, they, they would not compromise their morals or allow the culture to influence their direction or their perception. They wouldn't allow it to change where they were headed. They wouldn't allow the culture to change how they saw things. They stuck to the task at hand. They persevered. They kept going in in the face of diversity. And they didn't just do it individually. They looked at one another and they challenged one another to it. And they disciplined one another for it. He also points out that they tested false apostles and and then proved them false. It wasn't like they went with these accusations and were proven wrong. These people, that the church at Ephesus was a doctrinally sound church. They knew the gospel. They knew the teachings of the apostles. They knew the scriptures. They knew. They had great knowledge of these things. They studied. They, were in, they, they knew them. And repeatedly, this was not just a one-time event, a false apostle came to town. This happened over and over and over. And as the apostles came in, they'd hear the gospel message. They'd compare it to what they'd been given, and they'd say, get out. We have nothing. We want nothing to do with you. There's, there's letters that demonstrate that they would have absolutely nothing. They literally would not eat a meal. They wouldn't have anything to do with people who preached the false gospel. Hey, and we need that, right? That's a good thing. We, we have false apostles in our day. We have false gospels being preached in our day. We need that, right? We need commitment. We need perseverance. Those are good traits, right? Uh, That's easy to see, though, I think. I I think the one that shocked me the most as I studied this week, and uh, I was kind of surprised to see this, and and maybe it hit me this time, and and it hasn't in in the past, because we're we're, we're facing it more and more. Even after the, the fault that Jesus had against them, he comes back and he says, Yet, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And that struck me, you know, because here we face constantly, day in and day out, more and more every day, we face being called intolerant bigots because we hold to the truth of Scripture. Now, let's see. Jesus is commending them for what the world condemns them for. What do you think is better to receive? He holds seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven lampstands. He has authority to pull one away. I think it makes more sense to be on his side. The reality is is that we face this in so many situations. Particularly, you think about, this is the thing that I thought about, simply because of the current events with the Supreme Court uh, hearing the arguments for same-sex marriage. And I saw a tweet from a guy named Jared Wilson. If you guys don't follow Jared Wilson on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, even if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter and follow Jared Wilson. If that's the only guy you follow, he's got good stuff to say. Some of his stuff is senseless. I mean, he's telling you what he had for breakfast. But the reality is most of his stuff, solid, man. It'll make you think, follow the dude. 
But he puts out on Twitter, he says, you know, I'm receiving a lot of grief for this, but nobody can answer the question. And he linked himself to another tweet that he had previously made. And he said, hey, if it's okay for a man to marry a man, or if it's okay to have same-sex marriage, why should we limit, the, limit it to two people? And so he got a lot of grief over that statement because obviously we're not ready. Our government, our, our country's not ready to say that we can have marriage with many, many people. Our government, our people are not ready to say, well, you can marry anybody, even if it's a 10-year-old little boy. You can marry him if you want. You know, we're not ready to say that, but the reality is, is, is as this degrades, as this goes away, what's to stop us from going as far as we want? As far as we, our sinful hearts will lead us. And here's the reality. I, I'm not against, I'm not, I, you know what, I'm not surprised at all that homosexual people, gay people want to get married. Why would I be surprised that people who don't love Jesus act like sinners? I'm not. In fact, the reality is, is that as the church, we shouldn't be hateful or demeaning or bigoted towards gay people. I've got gay people who are near and dear to me, related to me. And I strive to treat them like everybody else. I don't think it's meant that we're to be jerks to them. But the reality is, is that in this time, in this place, we have a responsibility to the gospel to make sure that we call sin, sin, and call people to repent from sin and trust in Jesus. Not to be jerks, not because we're uneducated or not because we're ignorant, backwoods, rednecks, but because our love and devotion to Jesus commit us to his way and not our own. But that's exactly what the culture doesn't want us to do. On the other hand, that's exactly what Jesus is commending these people in Ephesus for. It's not our job to police the culture. It's not our job to make lost people live moral lives. But it is our job to, within the church, to live in such a way that it demonstrates the beauty and the glory and the majesty and, and, and the so sovereignty of the God who sent His Son to die on a cross and rose on the third day. You see, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what this is supposed to be about. And the only way we have in policing this world is simply because we get a vote in our country. So vote in a way that honors God. But don't go out making a fight over it. And treating people like they're less. Because the only reason you're where you're at is because Jesus has saved you. But now he's called you to live in this way. And do it humbly. You see, here's the problem. Here's where it became an issue. Is that they had taken all of these things, all of these good traits. And if that's all Jesus had to say about them, that would be awesome. They would be a healthy, wonderful church. But... They had lost their first love. They had lost their first love. Their whole existence for living had suddenly changed. Now, all that they were about had, had become something different. Their good works. There was something else. In fact, here's the reality. We don't know. Jesus doesn't specify in the text exactly what they loved most. And I think he did that intentionally because I think the reality is he intends this word to be to his whole church and not specifically to Ephesus. And so we can't say, oh, well, we don't love those things, so we're okay and we can move on. He left a big blank. You left your first love 
for something else. You see, here's what happened. The Ephesian church had, had begun or had become devoted to something or someone else other than Jesus. Something else was of their primary concern. Something else was in their way. Something else had taken his place. We don't really know what that is. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you, you lost your first love like that high school romance when you first felt those butterfly feelings like, whew, I'm so in love. I got to get back to that. No, he's talking about biblical agape love. This is a devotion. This is a, a, a commitment. This is a, de- a, a decision to act in the interest of others. This is, a, this is a willful choice, not some emotion that he's referring to. It's more about devotion. It's more about motivation. And why can Jesus approach us and speak to us about our motivations? Because he knows us intimately. He's the one walking through among the seven lampstands. He's the one that holds the seven stars. He knows us from the inside out. He looks at our hearts and he can say, you love something else other than me. And I wish, I wish that this was not the struggle that we have faced through the ages. Truth be told, there's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with some level of idolatry in your life. Has left their first love. I think in the text here we get to see just a glimpse, maybe just a just an inference of some things that they loved. I think that the Ephesian church likely loved their knowledge of the scriptures more than they had loved Jesus. More they, they were devoted more to their knowledge than they were to Jesus. They depended on their knowledge more than Jesus. They had grown in their understanding of theology and doctrine. They had grown in their understanding of the gospel. And as they grew in knowledge, they needed Jesus less. Maybe you know somebody like this who's got all kinds of knowledge but no practical application. Who, When, 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 when um, the question is asked, you know, in Sunday school, they've got the answer. But when they're at the restaurant after church on Sunday, they treat the waitress like poo because she didn't live up to their expectations. Maybe you know someone who has all the knowledge and could sit and give you all the answers and all the reasons why you should or shouldn't do something. But when it comes to practical application, their life is jacked up. They're just covering it up and hiding it from you and living in their devotion to their knowledge. Maybe you know somebody that's done that. I, I hope that there's nobody in this room. But here, this is what Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 8.1 is he's dealing with an issue of people eating and living in freedom and, and knowing that their knowledge has enabled them to live in freedom. He says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. It, it, oh, man, I know what I'm talking about. But love builds up. And in the particular context, he's calling them to not live in their knowledge, but to love the weaker brother. And, hey, give up the food so that you don't offend their consciences or so that you take them into consideration. Give yourself up. Sacrifice yourself for the good of another. That's the love he's calling them to. No amount of knowledge will make us worthy of the gospel. We need to know. We need to know. This is the piece of knowledge that you can never let go of. We need to know we will always need grace. 
You will always need grace. You will never be smart enough. You will never be learned enough. You cannot spend enough, enough days in seminary. You cannot spend enough time in Bible study. You cannot, you cannot spend enough time among Christian people discussing the Scriptures to ever come to a place where you know enough to stand and tell God you made it on your own. You will always need grace. But I think these Ephesian people have forgotten it. They came to know so much that they were forgetting their need for grace. Good theology, good theology, accurate theology will always lead to God-focused doxology. If you ever stand in a place where you can say, I got my theology and I'll, I'll argue whoever wants, you know, I got it, I'll prove you wrong. That is bad theology. I don't care how accurate your theology might be. Good theology leads to God-centered doxology. Otherwise, it's bad, no matter how right it might sound according to the Scriptures. You see, here's the thing is I think that they loved their knowledge, and I think that they loved their works. They weren't recognizing their need for Jesus as much because they couldn't see the darkness of the self-righteousness that was eating them like a cancer. They couldn't see that standing in their own place and in their own, in their own power and their own works was destroying them. They couldn't see the darkness that was with enveloping them. Without love, without love, our good works are nothing but dry, dead religion. Maybe, just maybe, in this religious culture, you have friends that struggle with this. You know people that deal with this that they have all of these good deeds that make them feel holy and righteous and have forgotten. And just I mean, think about what Brent read this morning. This love is alive in us because he put it there, because it's God in us. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, another place, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing if I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I have such spiritual prowess that everybody around me looks and says, oh, he is a holy man, but have not love, I might as well quit. If I have the the prophetic power, if if I'm able to deduce and discern things from a spiritual, in, in what seems to be a spiritual power, but I'm not loving, that's not from God. If I'm willing to martyr myself For the name of the cause, but am not doing it in the love of God, then I am doing it for the wrong reasons. You see, this is the the challenge that these Ephesians, I believe, were facing. I think that's why Jesus called out those particular strengths. Because I think they had learned to lean on their own strength and understanding rather than on His. Good works... I'm sorry, the self-righteous effort of the Ephesian church and our own makes us nothing more than Pharisees. And I just would encourage you at some point to go and sit down and read Matthew chapter 23. Jesus commended the Pharisees for some things, but he also challenged them 
hey, you are whitewashed tombs. You're dead inside. That's not who I want to be. That's not what I want for this church. That's not what Jesus expects of his church. Good works, though. On the other hand, good works motivated by love for Jesus, his people, and his mission are acts of worship. You see, we need, Jesus is approving us to, 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 to grow in knowledge. He's approving us to, uh, of us to persevere and to push through and to discipline one another. He is approving of us to, to separate ourselves from culture in such a way that lets them see the distinction. Not to mean, not, not to isolate, but let them see the distinction. What's different? What makes us different? But if we do all these good things, and don't love him first, we won't love the people he sends us to love. That's about the motive and the devotion and the underpinning. You see, all that they were doing was being undone. And he tells them, remember, remember your first love. That's Jesus. Repent. Turn from all of those substitutes. Turn from your knowledge. Turn from your good works. Turn from your determination. Turn from them. Come back to me. Let them go. Return to me. Return to Jesus. That's the message. That's what he's constantly calling us to. And then he ends with his promise. In Revelation 2.7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus has some words that might come as, as something that would lift them up. And all of a sudden, he, he undermines that or he takes that away from them in saying that they would always or, or that they have been motivated in these moments by some other devotion and some other love. And he says, that's not worth anything. You need to get back to this. Put me first. And then he says this. He gives this promise. If you have ears to hear, hear. That means respond. Do something about it. Live in accordance with His teaching. Live in obedience to Him, out of love for Him. And the promise is beautiful. What went wrong at the very beginning? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were no longer allowed to eat from the tree of life. In fact, the angels were put around it, and they were... Put it the, 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 they, they, they kept Adam and Eve from it. They guarded against them coming to eat from this tree. And Jesus says, I will allow you to eat the tree of life. The promise is life everlasting in the presence of the Creator who is walking among the lampstands, who holds the seven stars, who knows you from the inside out. He knows your strengths and He knows your weaknesses. And He's always, 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 always calling you, repent. Remember your first love. Remember the things that I called you to. Remember the, the, the reason that you're saved. Remember what I've done for you. Remember that I live and I reign and I rule. Remember that I am the preeminent one. Change your mind about all the other junk and return to me. Let's pray. Oh God, we're grateful for your salvation for the work of your son on the cross and the things that he's done for us. Father, we're grateful for your, your, um, your love and, and devotion to us. God, I, Jesus, I, I'm thankful for your sacrifice and for um, 
not leaving us, not forsaking us, not forgetting us, but being with us. Now, God, I just would ask in this moment that you would help us to see what our first love is. Maybe it's, I don't know, knowledge. Maybe it's our good works. Maybe, maybe it's our, our families. Maybe, maybe it's our work. God, what, whatever it is, would you just deal with us in that now? That we may hear your call to, to remember to repent and return. That we would be able to respond well. God, as, as we hear that, would we also hear the, the promise of life for the one that overcomes? Would you, would you just in your spirit rest on us, God, and give, show us the hope, show us the, show us the promise, show us the, 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 the uh, it, it, well, it's decided, it's done, it, it, it's, it's, it might as well be over with. The promise is a, a present reality. Would you help us to walk in that, walk in that victory? God, I, I thank you. We thank you. Would you work in us now and challenge us? and grow us. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.